you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning and peace be with you. Uh, My name is Cole. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really good to be with you this morning. Um, Felt a just a particular um, sense of joy and worship this morning as we were singing together. Uh, What a blessing that is. Uh, We're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews this morning. Before we do that, I do want to uh, just reiterate what was said at the beginning of the gathering, and that is. Uh, covenant members be here tonight at 7:30. Uh, we have a members meeting slash celebration. Uh, there will be two particular uh, topics of discussion uh, that are, are very important for the life of our church, and so uh, please prioritize being there. Uh, as I said, we're in Hebrews this morning, and we're looking at Hebrews 9, which uh, Jordan um, faithfully read for us this morning. And and as you are following along in the reading, I'm sure you notice that there's a, a density to the thought in Hebrews chapter 9, that it's a, a difficult passage with a lot to unpack. Um, but at the core of it is this idea that Jesus has given us representation in heaven. And so let's pray, and then let's see why that matters. And, and I'm also going to ask that you would, um, if you're following along in your Bible, so also turn to Leviticus chapter 16, as we'll be referencing um, that chapter as well. So let's pray, and then let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you that, that regardless of how we have showed up this morning, whether we are exhausted mentally or physically or spiritually, whether we are feeling alive and confident in your truth or whether our souls feel as though they are wavering, that, that none of that prevents the realities of the gospel from being true. That our hope is not in, in our frailty, or our feebleness, but it is in you and your finished work in Jesus. And I pray this morning as we speak of him, as we hear of him, as we see the work that he has accomplished for us and and the immensity of what it means for us that Christ is in the heavenly places on our behalf, that you would fill our hearts with confidence, that you would restore our souls to joy and gladness, that you would allow even those in the room who have yet to take hold of you by faith to see you for who you are and take hold of you, to be made alive in the truth of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So God has always related to his people through a covenant relationship. We talk about this a lot at Sojourn, that that originally he established covenant relationship with Adam, and then through Noah, and then through Abraham, and Moses, and David, and central to the idea of a covenant relationship between God and his people is that God promised to dwell among his people. We see this uh, emphatically in the garden where God is dwelling intimately with Adam and Eve, but then we see that beautifully in the covenant given under Moses where God takes up residence among his people through the tabernacle or the temple. And 
And there's a major issue with this arrangement of God dwelling with his people, and it is that his people are sinful. And so God was among his people, Israel, in the tabernacle, but they could not be among him. In other words, God was gracious and kind to dwell in the midst of his people. He graciously and mercifully made himself to dwell in the camp of Israel, but they could not access his realm. Upholding this covenantal relationship between God and his people, therefore, is the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God. And in the old covenant, that is the covenant given to God's people prior to Christ, specifically the covenant given to Moses, God's grace was mediated through the sacrificial system of the tabernacle, later the temple. The tabernacle was not only a house of worship, though. It was also a house for God on earth. And in the center of the tabernacle was a room called the most holy place where God's presence would come and rest, where it would be visible from the outside at particular times when God's presence would rest. They would see a cloud of glory over the tabernacle. The most holy place was the earthly throne room of God, and it served, as the author of Hebrews tells us, as a copy or a symbolic rendering of the heavenly throne room that has always existed for eternity, where God has always reigned and ruled. And as you entered the tabernacle on the way to the most holy place, there was an, an outer portion called the holy place. And in the holy place, there was a golden lamp stand, um, and it represented that God is the light among his people, that he leads the way for them, that he reveals the truth to them. More, there was also a, a table that held the showbread or the bread of the presence, and it represented that God had fellowship with his people, that his people could feast at his table, that he was a friend to them. There was the the table of the bread of the presence. There was the the lampstand. But then through a veil, as you entered the most holy place, you, you get to this innermost portion of the tabernacle, and there you would find the Ark of the Covenant holding the tablets of of the Ten Commandments called the mercy seat, the throne of God on earth. The, The Ten Commandments representing God's righteous law, ruling his chosen people and his mercy toward them in their sin, that he would still give them a way to worship him, to relate to him, to obey him. There were carvings in the most holy place of these angelic beings, the the cherubim representing the heavenly hosts that surround God in his heavenly throne room who offer him praise and worship and sing to him all days for all time. There was Aaron's staff that, that budded, showing that God makes life from death. And there was manna from the wilderness journey, showing that God provides for his people miraculously. And, and, and there was an altar of incense which represented the pleasant aroma of the prayers of the people going up to God. And, and this, so this room, this most holy place, is beautiful. It's unbelievable. It's full of all these symbols of God's love and his care and his power and his righteousness and his presence dwelled there, and yet nobody was allowed to go inside. 
except for one day in the year, one person could go inside. And that day of the year was Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur was the only time, and then only the high priest of the people could enter the presence of God. Yom Kippur was in some ways an annual reboot of the sacrificial system, with the idea that throughout the year, the sins of the people, the inadequacies of a human priesthood, the disparity between God's righteousness and human sinfulness, it would accumulate And in order for God to continue dwelling among his people, God established a way of cleansing them and rebooting the system. It was covenant renewal. So what happened on Yom Kippur? Well, Leviticus 16 tells us, and I'm not going to read directly from the passage, but I'm going to give you footnotes. The high priest, or Aaron originally, was called to come before God in the most holy place on Yom Kippur. This is the momentous occasion of Yom Kippur that uh, that Israel gets to have a representative in the most holy place. And he was called to come there in order to atone for the sins, even the unintentional sins, of the people of Israel. And to atone for the uncleanness of the tabernacle itself, meaning that God dwelling with his people was in some way an infirmity to God. That the tabernacle where he dwelled was tainted by the sinfulness of the people who worshipped there and that it needed to be atoned for. But Aaron couldn't just brazenly go into the most holy place on the day of atonement. If he did, the text said he would die. And we're we're given pictures beforehand in Leviticus, specifically in chapter 10, of what happens when people try to make their own way of coming to God. And it resulted in two men being burnt up by the righteousness of God. And so when Aaron was called on Yom Kippur, he was given specific instructions. He would need a bull to offer as a sin offering for him and for the priesthood. He would need a ram to offer as a burnt offering before the Lord. He would need to be washed ceremonially in water, and then he would put on specific holy garments to wear into the most holy place. This idea, this symbol of, of Aaron needed to be clothed in the righteousness of God in order to present himself in the presence of God. And he would gather two goats, and that God commanded him to cast lots between the goats to determine which of the goats would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people and which would be the scapegoat, as we call it, which we'll discuss later. As he entered the most holy place, Aaron was commanded to, the first thing he was to do is to burn incense so that there would be a cloud of smoke serving as a barrier between him and between the righteous presence of God that even in the room where God dwelt, Aaron needed a barrier between him and God, lest he be consumed by all of God's righteousness. And then, once inside, Aaron was to sprinkle blood from the sacrificed animals over the mercy seat and over all the elements that were in the most holy place in order to atone for the uncleanness of Israel, for the uncleanness of the holy place, the sins of the people, which was the, the place which was defiled simply by being among a sinful people. So he'd go in to the presence of God and he would sprinkle it with blood to purify it so that God would remain among his people. And then upon exiting the most holy place, Aaron would gather the scapegoat. 
And he would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess the people's sins over this goat. And then he would send it away into the wilderness where it would be bearing the iniquity of the people and sent out of their midst, never to be seen from again, this showing that God removes the sins of his people from them to purify them, to cleanse them. And then there was more washing and more cleansing and more sacrifices to atone for the sins of Israel. And in the end, the Lord considered Israel clean before him for all their sins. Yom Kippur was both a Sabbath day of rest and worship and a fasting day of affliction and sobriety. It's the only day in the Jewish calendar in which fasting is commanded or permitted on a Sabbath. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 distinctly compare the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the high priest on Yom Kippur. Hear this, verses 6 through 10 of our passage this morning. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So so I'm not going to unpack this verse by verse, but what I want to do is is help show the point that the author is making. He's making this point that the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was proof that the people did not have real access to the presence of God. They, They didn't have real access to the presence of God in the Old Covenant. He makes this point by pointing out that only the high priest and only once a year and only with these washings and sacrificings and the burning of incense and the splattering of blood, only then could he enter the most holy place. The necessity of all of these washings and sacrifices and rituals and the provision that it's only once a year, that it's only one person from the camp, it's a message in itself. The sinfulness of mankind cannot dwell in the presence of God. And and the system of the old covenant only dealt superficially with the sins of the people. Now, Now don't hear me wrong, Yom Kippur was a magnificent day. Magnificent day. It was magnificent because the people would remember and experience on Yom Kippur the reality that God was gracious toward them that he did not deal with them according to their sins, that God forgives and cleanses his people, and that as a result, he continues to dwell with them. So on Yom Kippur, the people remembered, God wants to be with us. He wants to be among us. He has chosen us. He wants to bless us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to be light for us in the darkness. But Yom Kippur was also a solemn day. It was a solemn day of fasting and affliction, and the confessing of sins. It was the primary day in the calendar of the Jewish people in which the dark hearts of men would be exposed in bloody ceremony in light of God's righteousness. 
It was a reminder for Israel that they desperately needed God to dwell in their midst because they would be looking and reflecting on all of their sinfulness and they would be left to conclude that apart from God's gracious choice to dwell in our midst, we would be no different than the pagan nations that surround us. The author of Hebrews is telling us that what Christ has accomplished is better. It's more full. He says in verses 11 through 14, but when Christ appeared, now hear this, when you're reading the New Testament and you see the words but and then Christ, you need to lean in. So, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author of Hebrews is making the fundamental point of chapter 9 here. It's a point that Peyton began to make for us last week, that all of the realities and blessings expressed in God's covenant relationship between his people Israel and himself, they come to a fullness of what they were always meant to be in Christ. In other words, Yom Kippur was a placeholder. It was a blueprint of the atonement to come. The earthly tabernacle and even the most holy place where God himself dwelt was nothing more than a copy or a rendering of the real heavenly places. The blood of bulls and goats were always placeholders for the blood of the righteous God-man who truly had the ability to purify his people to the uttermost. The atonement of Yom Kippur was superficial. God used the blood of bulls and goats as placeholders for the blood of Christ, but the blood of bulls and goats, the author of Hebrews tells us, did nothing more than ritually clean the people of Israel so that God could allow himself or stand to dwell in their presence. But the blood of Christ offered by Jesus himself through the power of the Holy Spirit in the real heavenly places has the power to cleanse us to the uttermost to purify our consciences and not only our flesh, to to purify our consciences from the shame and guilt that come with sin so that we can be raised to serve the living God. So where the blood of bulls and goats stays the wrath of God, the blood of Christ transforms the people of God. Let's skip ahead to verses 23 through 28. It says, thus it was necessary. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, 
And after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the author is speaking about the tabernacle and the most holy place, and he calls them copies, which is language we've already used. Copies of the heavenly things. Aaron had to purify a copy of the heavenly things a representation of heavenly things in order to enter it without dying. Like this was something that was made by human hands and even it had been made so holy by the presence of God that you couldn't enter it without dying apart from the shedding of blood. So how much more would Christ need to make offering in the real heavenly realms for the people of God to have representation? Christ did not go into the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. There's no account of him ever having done that. Instead, he went into heaven itself. He went into the real thing. He went into the presence of God, the real throne room of God, where God has always been and has sprinkled the throne room of heaven with his own blood. God's throne in heaven is a bloody throne. And why is that necessary? It was necessary because the wages of sin is death. And and that blood sacrifice is the price for a sinful people to pay before a holy God. Moreover, it is necessary because covenants are cut with blood oath. The blood of Christ is sprinkled on the throne in heaven in order to assure us that what God has promised us will surely be upheld, that we can trust in the word of God forever because Christ's blood speaks the word of promise. If he has said he will forgive us, the blood on the throne in heaven speaks that word forever in the heavenly places, so he will surely do it. When Aaron and the high priest who followed him would go into the most holy place on Yom Kippur, it was a moment for the people of Israel to know for sure that God knew them, that God loved them, and that God would dwell with them because one of their own was representing them in his court. This is a big deal for Israel to have someone go into the throne room of God, to, for one of them to be among God. This is a huge deal. And we understand this in, in even lesser human terms. If you're advocating for a specific policy or, or movement, and, and someone who's part of your organization gets a hearing in the Oval Office, that would be a momentous occasion. It would be a big deal that you have representation in the highest room of authority in your society. You've had a hearing from the president in his space. So it's a big deal for the people of Israel. Having a representative or a mediator before the throne of God is powerful. It's confidence-inducing. And so the blood of Christ and the presence of Christ in the places should give you confidence. It gives you confidence because it means that God has accepted a man into his presence, meaning that humanity has been saved in such a way that we can enter into the presence of God. 
We've had hearing before him. It gives us confidence that God knows our need of his grace because Christ has entered the heavenly places with the fullness of our sinfulness exposed before God and that his blood has been splattered over the throne of God so that we can know that God is for us. Gives us confidence because Christ is in the heavenly places pleading our case as our high priest and praying for us at every moment that we might endure and remain and be forgiven as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. I mentioned earlier that on Yom Kippur, one of the parts of the ritual was that the high priest would gather the scapegoat and lay his hands on the head of this goat and confess all the sins of the people over the goat before sending it away into the wilderness. And in this, the scriptures tell us in Leviticus 16 that the goat was bearing the iniquity of the people and carrying it away. Church, Christ has become our scapegoat. He has had all of our sins placed upon him. And he has confessed all of our sins over his own head and he has carried them away into the exile wilderness of death and exile from the presence of God in his crucifixion so that our sins are no more. As our scapegoat, he's carried them away. As our high priest, he's confessed them all, past, present, future, all of your sins, even those that you have no awareness of, that in your ignorance you do not know you have committed, Christ has confessed them on your behalf. Here's what that means. It means there's a God in heaven who knows the fullness of your wickedness. And that might sound like bad news. It means that there are no secrets before the God of the universe. There's a God in heaven who knows the fullness of your sinfulness. He knows every evil thought you've ever had or will have, every evil deed you've ever had or, or will do, every way in which you've failed your brothers or your sisters, ways that you've dishonored people in your life. God knows it because Christ has confessed it. And yet, this is good news. It is good news because he has still chosen to be your God. He isn't getting into the deal of being your heavenly father without knowing exactly what that means. He has chosen you. He has chosen to clean you from the inside out, making your conscience pure. He sprinkled the heavenly places with his blood for you so that God will keep dwelling with you forever and so that you will be able to dwell with him. Church, Christ's entry into the heavenly places on our behalf is at the center of, of our assurance of God's love for us and our confidence in his unending grace. And so if you're one who, who doubts your salvation, who doubts that, that God's love for you could be real, if you feel that your sins are too many, your past is too messy, your thoughts and actions are too unholy, well, you're right. They, they are. Your sin is too much. Your wickedness is too deep. 
Your thoughts and actions are too unholy. Your past is certainly too messy to gain you entry into the presence of God. And yet you can take heart in the fact that Christ's blood, not your blood and not the blood of bulls and goats, is speaking the word of your pardon, the word of your acceptance. He's preparing a way for you to enter the most holy places so that your representative in heaven means that it is not about your resume. You can take confidence because Christ is there for you. Or if you're like me, and you, you have a constant feeling that you need to prove your worth to God and to others through perfection, you can stop and rest in the reality that God has already aired all of your dirty laundry. Christ has aired all of your dirty laundry before the Father in the heavenly throne room and God still wants you as his son or daughter and so you don't need to impress him. You just need to worship him. Christ's presence in heaven matters because it means that we too share in heavenly blessings now. If if our king and our priest and our mediator is in heaven, then that means we share in heavenly blessings. Paul goes as far in Ephesians chapter 2 to say that, that we who have been united to Christ through faith are seated with him right now in the heavenly places. That right now you and I who are in Christ are in the heavenly places with Christ through faith. Now that doesn't mean that you aren't physically and really here on earth. And it doesn't mean that you should be having some sort of mystical or spiritual experience that's hard to explain uh, and how you're currently in the heavenly places in a way that you don't quite understand and, and that if you feel like you don't have that, you should be doubting. That is not what it says. It means by nature of being united to Christ by faith that wherever he is, there we are too. It's the nature of mediation and representation that if Christ is in heaven and he is our mediator, he is our representative, then there we are too. If, Christ, if Christ's presence in the heavenly places is a pleasant welcome for God the Father, then so too is our presence pleasantly welcomed by God the Father. We have all the blessings of heaven given to us through his presence there. And some of them we enjoy even now. We're given heavenly light to guide our way through the ministry of the Spirit. We're given heavenly food to sustain our souls through the Word of God, through the sacraments. And the blessed laws of God are, are given to us mercifully to lead us into heavenly lives with more blessings to follow. Which leads us to the final implication of the reality that Christ is in the heavenly places. It's that Christ is in the presence of God now it means that we will get to be in the presence of God in all of its fullness in the end. It means we have hope that one day we will enter into the fullness of God's presence. No veil, no incense guarding or protecting us, but then in the fullness of God's presence, we will be there too. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that he was going to die and they were troubled. And he comforted them Saying this, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where you, where I am, you may also be. And you know the way 
to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So so God, through Christ, has prepared a way for us to enter into God's house in the heavenly places, and Christ will come again to take us to him. This text also is one of the most clear texts that shows that there is an explicit and exclusive nature to the way in which people can experience heavenly blessings, and it's through Christ alone. He says, I am the way. No one can come to the Father except through me. Why is that? Because there is one human representative in heaven, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you're not united to him through faith, you will never experience the blessings of heaven. But if you are united to Christ through faith, you will certainly experience the blessing of belonging gladly in the fullness of joy, in the presence of God for eternity. Aaron prepared a place for himself in the presence of God by sprinkling blood over the mercy seat, burning incense, and presenting God with offerings. So Christ has prepared a place for us by sprinkling his blood, by sending forth the incense of his prayers on our behalf, and by presenting his body as the offering in our place. The beauty of the most holy place in the tabernacle was that God came to dwell with men, but now Jesus has prepared a way for us to go and dwell with God. Our text ends this way. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So when Christ returns, he's going to draw us up into the clouds with him and we will join him in this heavenly descent of the heavenly city upon the new earth. And God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and so we ought to eagerly await for him. We should be excited about that day. We should eagerly anticipate that day and wait for him gladly and wait with purpose. In the scriptures, waiting is never laziness. It's never sitting still. Instead, we wait with purpose. To give you an example, when I'm expecting a guest in my home, especially someone that I'm, I'm waiting for with excitement, maybe someone I haven't seen in a long time, I wait by seeking to honor that guest. I don't sit on the couch and just wait for the doorbell to ring. I clean, I cook, We set up their room with fresh linens and clean their their bathroom. And the text has called us to wait for Christ. And when it said that Christ has saved us to serve the living God, it's telling us how to wait for Christ by serving the living God. To eagerly await Christ is to be sure that he will come and to serve him until he does. We serve God by obeying him, by loving him, by worshiping him, by showing his love to those around us, and by making room in our hearts for him. When Christ arrives, may he find us ready and eager to see him face to face, knowing that he has come not to deal with our sin. He will come to be with us forever. As we close, I want you to hear the passage I referenced from Ephesians 2. Beginning in chapter, in verse 4, it says, But God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Hear this, so that in the coming ages, he might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in God's kindness, he allows us to know him now to be transformed by him now, to experience his presence through the spirit now, to have confidence of our forgiveness now. So in the midst of a world tainted by sin and despair, God has come to us. This passage tells us that there is a coming age in which there's even more grace to be experienced. That God's dwelling place will be with man, but even more that man's dwelling place, for the first time in full, will be with God. No more sin, only glory, and we will be allowed to be there, behind the curtain, at the throne of God, looking upon him with unveiled face because Christ's blood has gone before us. So let's pray, and then let's remember the blood of the covenant in the meal.